Hello there. Welcome to the Kind Mind Podcast. My name is Todd, and this is one of those unique segments where I invite a special guest. I call this part of the podcast Live Free or Dialogue, where I have an open and spirited conversation with somebody who is uh, doing some meaningful, important work in the world, or in this case, has written a new book. And I'd like to welcome and introduce you to Vitaly Katzenelson, who was born in Murmansk, USSR, and immigrated to the United States with his family in 1991. After joining Denver-based value investment firm IMA in 1997, Vitaly became chief investment officer in 2007 and CEO in 2012. Vitaly has written two books on investing and is an award-winning writer. Known for his uncommon common sense, Forbes magazine called him the new Benjamin Graham. He's written for publications like Financial Times and Foreign Policy, his articles are also published on his website, which is really great. It's called Contrarian Edge and in audio format on his Intellectual Investor podcast. Vitaly lives in Denver with his family, where he loves to read, listen to classical music, play chess, and write about life, investing, and music. But his new book is a little bit of a departure. It's called Soul in the Game. I'm almost finished with it, and I'm really enjoying uh, all the different places it goes, from his background in Russia to his transition to America and um, investing, and then philosophy and stoicism. And I think Vitaly really has a way of making wisdom and complicated ideas really accessible to his readers. And this book, Soul in the Game, has some really beautiful endorsements from notable thought leaders like Wim Hof and Nassim Nicholas Taleb and Rolf Dabelli, some, um, some thinkers who I really admire. So uh, welcome, Vitaly. Thank you for, for joining me today. Uh, can we start by uh, having you share a little bit about your background and what inspired this new book? Oh, well, Todd, first of all, thank you very much for having me here. I'm really excited. Um, well, I think you did a great job summarizing my background. Uh, you know, as you can, yes, as your listeners and viewers can tell from my accent, I was born in Russia and, um, well, in Soviet Russia at the time. And... Uh, I lived in the United States for basically 30 years. Uh, I live in Denver. Uh, I, so I have a passion for a few things. You know, I love investing. I also, about 2004, I discovered that I have a passion for writing. I, I read an advertisement that the street.com was looking for uh, columnists uh, to write for, for the, you know, for, for the street.com. So I, 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 I tried doing that, and I actually fell in love with writing as well. And, and I, would, I would say that writing is probably the most thing that happened to me as an adult. I'm, you know, aside from getting married and having kids, this kind of stuff. But writing completely rewired my brain. And if I have any, like, it's probably added 20 IQ points to my intelligence, you know, which is, I need it as, you know, and, and, you know, I, I, you know, considering from the level I was coming from, I needed every point. So, uh, and uh, so this book, like the fact that I actually wrote this book, I look at this, it's, it's a little bit, it's still a bit shocking to me because I have a two, two degrees in finance. I have a CFA degree, you know, uh, uh, designation. I've been doing investing for so, you know, for so many years, for almost 25 years. And if, when I wrote investment books, they felt natural because, you know, that's, you know, 
uh, that's kind of my background. Well, right. Can, in, can yeah. I ask you also about that, Vitaly? How does a young a young man or a boy even become mm-hmm. passionate about investing? That's such an abstract uh, pursuit. You know, I, you you mentioned in the book that your father thought maybe you know you could open a bagel shop or something that's more. Right. Practical and kind of real, yeah. No, that's right. Well, <laughs> that's, that's a great point. My father always looked at investing from his kind of Soviet perspective. He always thought it's basically kind of speculating. Um, remember the um, uh, he you know he always looked at New York Stock Exchange as basically how a bunch of uh, gamblers come to a high stakes casino and that's what they do there. Um, luck. Now to answer your question, how did I get into investing? Like. This is what I discovered about life. A lot of there was just a lot of things happen in a random way, in a completely unpredetermined way. I was in college and I think I dated like six or seven different majors. And every single time I tried a major, you know, a month later I would give up because I, you know, was not a was not a good fit. I remember I took a management class because I thought, okay, I'm gonna become a I'm gonna you know, uh, management is gonna become a major. I took this class. And then the very last lecture, like at the very last day of class, I came to my teacher and I said, and now I know I don't want to be, be a manager. And I said, thank you very much for that. And the guy thought I was insulting him, but I was really thankful because I realized, you know, he did a, such a great job explaining what, you know, what managers do, or what management is about. I realized that's not for me. Um, I basically, I was very good with computers. Um, and that's a, that good with computers, like that's a skill I was able to, uh, develop, you know, develop on my own when I came to the United States because I could tinker with things, etc. Um, and um, I got a job working for an investment firm, you know, they, because of my computer skills. And there, I got to talk to portfolio manager, other portfolio managers. They had a Bloomberg terminal, so I played on Bloomberg. And then I took a finance class, and all these things kind of clicked together. I realized I actually really like about it. Like I would. Go, I would go for beers with my friends, and I would and I would talk about the concepts I learned in the finance class, like these kind of things. And that was a sign because when I took management class, that didn't happen. Like, you know, so I was lucky that very relatively early in my life, I figured out what I wanted to do, what I and not just wanted to do, what I love to do. And so that's how I got into investing. And and that's really special because when you actually love what you're doing, it's no longer work. Absolutely. Yeah, especially that, especially if you're lazy like me, because I really, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an incredibly lazy person. And when I have to do work, I really not good at that. And I hate doing that. So I, I basically kind of create a life where I don't have to work a day in my life. But Vitaly, when somebody is you know, trying to have a meaningful life and wealth obviously fits into that, right? How do you become somebody that can generate wealth, generate money, but not fall into the, the trappings of greed, let's say? Have you developed some processes or, or did you ever need to check yourself along the way? Because so it sounds many- like in your book that, yeah. that that balance is important to you and to, and to your family and in the way that you serve your clients? So, like, there are so many ways to answer this. So I'll give you some, yeah. some of these kind of high-level thoughts I developed over the years. Well, first of all, money does not buy happiness. That's, you know, it's, um, so it's what happens after we cover some of our basic needs, 
And I think I saw the numbers for the United States on average was about $85,000. The incremental dollar you make brings less and less utility of happiness. And um, because once you covered your needs, then you know, so then you, what you, you know, then it's a, what money stops doing. Um, okay, let me, I'm going to flip it a little bit. Lack of money creates unhappiness. If you can't pay for food, that if you can't sense. pay for a shelter, then it gives you incredible, you know, then, it, you know, then it's actually could become a significant uh, source of, uh, of unhappiness. So another thing I learned is that when you buy things, usually, the um, the spike you get in, uh, in uh, dopamine or whatever that you know that, that happiness is very short term lived. The experience usually give you uh, a, low, a more lasting kind of uh, pleasure, like you know, than just buying things. You know, um, so but anything you buy with money is subject to hedonic adaptation. Okay, so when you like, you know, over, you know, over time, you know, you, you get this, you know, uh, you know so, and uh, what happens is this, you get this spike and then you get used to it. And then for you to, and then you stop enjoying it. So for you to keep enjoying it, you need even, even big, you know, you need to spend even more money, even more things. And with every single, with every, and every single time that you need to spend more money to buy the same amount of happiness. And so that's what hedonic adaptation is. So what money does do, it gives you options. Like, you know, uh, money gives you options in life. And I think that's important. Um, but what Stoics would tell you that happiness comes from wanting what you have. And, I, you know, and uh, so the, and what I also learned that wealth, if you look at about wealth, and I'm like now I'm looking at it as an accountant for a second, okay? What wealth is, your income minus expenses, and whatever is left, that goes into your savings, which you invest, and that turns into wealth over time. So a lot of times when we talk about, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time uh, focusing on income, but we don't spend enough, enough time focusing on how we spend that money. Because... I've seen a lot of, you know, you've seen a lot of celebrities who make tens of millions of dollars a year go bankrupt. So it's a, so the income is income itself is not enough. It's also how you spend this money. And yeah. so when my wife and I got married, and I wrote about this in a book, um, I was lucky that my friend Mark took me out to lunch and he explained concepts that I feel like now we should teach in high school, like it should be like, it should be one of the mandatory classes that you take in high school. Yeah. What are a few of those, Vitaly? Yeah. So, so Mark started with a budget. Okay. He said, well, you know, you need to, Vitaly, you need to create a budget. You know, Vitaly and Rita, he was like, me and my wife, you guys need to create a budget. I was a bit insulted because I like at the time I had a finance degree and a CFA degree, CFA designation. And then now Mark is explaining me about the budget, but then Mark took a step further and he explained that when you th- what you th- you have to be very careful what you think your expenses are. It's not just the cable bill and the mortgage, etc. But what happens in life, there are a lot of expenses that don't just happen like on monthly basis. They happen on irregular basis every so many years or some. You know, so I'll give an example. You don't think about it, but we buy a car every every three or five years, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have a car today and you don't 
think about that you need to pay for, you know, that you don't, you know, that it doesn't cost you anything. Well, it does because every year it depreciates. So in five years, when you need to buy a car, if you haven't saved money for that purchase, then you have to borrow money. If you- And then compound interest is working against you. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. If you- if you figure out that if you say five thousand dollars a year for you know, and then in three years you need to buy a car, you're going to have fifteen thousand dollars. Then that expense will not come as a shock to you, and you have the money, and you won't have to borrow the money. Also, you're going to have emergencies, so you probably want to put a little bit of money away every month for emergency fund. So once you kind of and what Mark called this is kind of create a sinking fund, kind of look forward to your future expenses that kind of lumpy, and kind of bring them into your budget, uh, uh, into your current budget. And the money that's left, that's actually the money that you can spend on frivolous things. You know, after you, by the way, the retirement goes there and other things. You know, so, so the so after you paid for your, after you prepaid your retirement and all these things. That's the money you can spend on frivolous things. Um, what was interesting, um, and Todd, I know you're big into mindfulness. You know, I know, I know mindfulness, mindfulness is important to you. A lot of us, and, and myself, before I had a conversation with Mark, did I was mindless about how we're spending money. We just spend money because we spend money. We go to Starbucks because we go to Starbucks. But... If you look at your spending and you actually ask yourself a question, am I actually spending money and am I receiving joy out of that spending? Okay, I'll give you an example. Let's say you go to Starbucks every day and spend $5 a day, right? And you really don't care. Like for you, it's coffee. It's just more, it's, you're just paying for convenience, but you really don't care. That's a Starbucks coffee, right? Or it's a, that's... And, then you, you know, then you may be spending a lot of money a year, and you're getting very little joy out of this. Um, and that thousand dollars you spend a year on Starbucks, you might be, you could have taken this money, you save it, you know, you know that, you know, and you reallocate to something you enjoy. But again, you might be enjoying Starbucks, and that's fine. That's a that's a fine decision. So you like one thing I realized that money buys the more the most when you spend it on things that are valuable to you. Okay, so for my family, and I just wanna stress this, this is for my family. Mm-hmm. There, are f- like, there are four or five categories where we have very loose budgets because we found those things are important to us. And therefore we're gonna spend more money on those things and we're gonna save money in other categories. I'll give you an example, uh, education. We basically, you know, we have a, a very loose budget. So like my kids want to buy a book, we never say no. So I really like what you said about that in the book, that anytime you got a book, you didn't see it as, as an ordinary expense. It was an investment. Yeah, because yes, because I, I think it's very important for my kids to read. And when my kids see me read and when my youngest daughter sees her older sister reads, you know, read, that is an important, you know, that's an important um uh, lesson for her that you know, reading is important. So I make, by the way, and I write about this in the book, we go to a bookstore and make a big deal out of this. You know, I, you know and I buy him my, my, I buy my, my little, my eight-year-old, you know, uh, uh, little K-pop at, at Starbucks and my daughter, my older daughter, Chai tea, And I make a big deal out of this because I want them to enjoy books. 
And with kids, you know, sugar is a good way for them to, you know, you know <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, to get them to do things. But um, another thing is for us, I'll give another example. Um, I buy time. What does that mean? Well, there's a, like, we only have 24 hours in a day. And I find that, you know, remember how you and I talked, how I, I'm lazy, like doing I things relate. I don't like. Yeah. I so like, I don't like, like, I really don't like mowing the lawn or I absolutely hate putting together I- Ikea furniture. So whenever I have to do this, I hire somebody to do this for us. And this actually maximizes my, you know, because I hate doing it so much. It, I reduce this, you know, negative friction in my life. Um, also, when uh, I have an assistant, so I have when I have to schedule uh, phone calls, etc., she does that. And okay, so the just one point I want to stress: this is like I'm not a typical individual, and maybe like this is maybe high class problem. You know, people would argue that I have a high class problems, but let me give you an example that could, anybody could relate to. You get overcharged by three dollars on your by a credit card or your phone, or phone company. And you can spend 30 minutes on the phone trying to fix the three dollar problem. Okay. Right. Or you could or you could say, okay, that I'm not gonna spend, you know, you know, I'm not gonna spend 30 minutes to fix three dollar problem as an example of that. Um, so like also, you know, I we don't have a budget how much money we spend on health, right? And uh, so you know, so I have a trainer when I work out, etc. So it just, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. um, and when we buy food, we try to buy, you know, slightly high quality food. However, to, you know, so I, you know, I just I just showed you where I splurge, but at the same time, we, my wife and I, drove the same car, you know, for ten years. So we save, you know, so the money that you know the the money that we, you know we because we found that the it doesn't matter to us if you drive a brand new car or not. You know, so we saved a lot of money this way. We lived in the same house for the last 18 years. Again, we feel, we feel our house is absolutely fine. So we don't need to upgrade, even though my income is you know, it's significantly higher than it was 18 years ago. So, so it's not just... So, in, we, so what we did, we prioritized. And health and time is at the top, cars and house is at the bottom. So that's that's mm-hmm. an example of how, and time's uh, a non-renewable resource. That's exactly right. That's you no, know, that's exactly right. And you know, just let me let me give that, you know, like when, so my book is out, right? And I'm I'm going to be doing a lot of interviews, a lot of podcasts. Every you know, scheduling every interview and podcast takes 10, 15 minutes of my time. So if I did this, you know, it's probably a few hours a few hours a few hours uh, a week. You know, so I could take this time and spend it on research or on writing, or I could spend it on uh, scheduling calls. Well, I would argue that my time should be used on a, you know, they better used for research or writing or, or, or managing my company than scheduling calls. And my assistant, who is terrific at this, and she actually enjoys doing that, uh, you know, she has something to do. So, Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to outsource certain things in your life when you think about a budget with time. 
there's a book uh, called 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. When you, when you put it in different framings, Vitaly, you realize we're here for such a short time. How much do you want to spend doing things that you hate when you don't actually have to do it? And I do think this comes back to a, like a money mindset where there's, mm. there's some taboos around money that I'm sure you've recognized, you know, mm. talking to people, talking to clients. And we miss out on some of the collective wisdom because we don't just talk about things like that. How do you budget your time? How do you, how do you budget your money? I, I think another couple of things that would be so transformational for, for kids to learn in high school, like you said, would be how taxes work and how compound interest works. Because there's such a tradition and I think a, a cultural pressure, mm-hmm. it's breaking now. Uh, to basically trade hours for dollars. And and I think that could prompt people to argue with the phone company to get that $6 mm-hmm. uh, fraudulent charge off your bill. And and meanwhile, you know, you, know, you could have made a lot more money than that, or you could have just done it listening to music or, or enjoying time with your family. But some of these are taboos. And I think if we don't think of money as just this bad thing, that it's a kind of energy and it needs to be conserved and channeled in meaningful ways, like you talk about in your book, then I think I think we could have more conversations. I, I On my podcast, I like finding areas that are taboo in our culture and and try to you know pull back some of the, the curtains on that so people can help each other. I'm reading a wonderful book right now. Actually, not reading. I'm rereading a wonderful book for the second and third time by Ellen Linger. Okay. Uh, she's uh, she wrote a, She's like a godmother of uh, mother of mindfulness, and uh, she has several books on mindfulness. And um, one of the concepts that really stuck with me that you know you know when somebody asks her what's the best way to be mindful. And let me just tell you what mindful and mindfulness is, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, um, by telling you what, what it's not. Think about mindlessness. When you're mindless, you're basically doing things on autopilot. You're doing things because you were doing things, right? And by the way, a lot of things in life, we should be doing on autopilot because otherwise we go crazy. I'll give you an example. When you drive your car for the first time, most, um, so now I'm going to switch things a little bit. Um, uh, I'm going to introduce two more new concepts, uh, conscious and subconscious mind. Uh, um, but when you, like my 16-year-old daughter, your daughter Hannah is learning how to drive. And we, you know, and we went in the park uh, uh, for a driving lesson a couple of days ago. And when she was driving for the first time and she had to change the volume on the radio, suddenly the car started to go to the left. Okay, because at this time, every single thing she's doing happening in your conscious mind. Okay, and so therefore, and the bandwidth of the conscious mind is limited. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if we, ne- if we always spend our time in a conscious mind, we would not be able to get anything done. Okay, but what happens is that over time, uh, after you drive for a while, this conscious, you know, the, the uh, information goes from conscious to subconscious mind. So after, you know, like a lot of times, uh, I'm sure it happened to you, you're driving to work and you don't even remember how you got there because it's, you know, subconscious mind was making all the decisions for you, right? So now, so there is a value of, uh, of doing things on autopilot, 
you know, at times, right? Like, you know, when you're driving, okay? However, when we do this, we don't notice a lot of things. A lot of times we are going to work using the same road, even though that may not be the, road, the best road to take to work, but we just stop thinking about it. So the best, so according to uh, Ms. Langer, the best way to uh, avoid mindlessness is never to be sure in, in anything. When you are like, when you, when, when you basically assume, like, like you talked about finances, when it becomes dogmatic, when it's a taboo, when you, it's a basically, you, you take something as a core assumption, then you don't question it. When you, but um, I think the, a lot of times, the best thing to do is actually look uh, what are the assumptions are made and start questioning those assumptions. And that's how you become mindful. This is how you, you start noticing things there are like you were doing kind of an autopilot, yeah. but soon, you know, but and maybe you should rethink that. Mm-hmm. You should rethink that and then start doing an autopilot after that. But mm-hmm. you rethought that. And that makes me think, Vitaly, that that description of mindlessness, the autopilot, carelessness or distractedness, underthinking essentially, it it makes me realize that mindfulness isn't a really good word for what it is, because the opposite of underthinking would be overthinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So really mind, mindfulness should be a word in English like openness or, or, or presence or tuned in or something like that, because overthinking is like fixation, obsession, preoccupation. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying is, you know, you're not attached to these uh, two extremes. And I, I like that, that visual that somewhere in the middle, you have this ability to go to an autopilot you have this ability to concentrate your attention if you needed to purposefully, like a magnifying glass to accomplish something. But, but otherwise, you know, we can just kind of remain open to what is, and then we can kind of see things more clearly. That is a great point, actually. It's, I was thinking of maybe another way to phrase it. When you go to autopilot, it's a mindful decision to go to autopilot. In other words, you explore. Yes, good point. Yeah, so you explore, you're driving to work, you explore it mindfully all the possible roads for different time of the year, different time of the day. And you made like, you see, it's not just, it's for different time of the day as well and different time of the year. And then you said, okay, this is the best time. This is the best road for this, you know, for this, you know, for this time of the day or whatever. Now you made a mindful decision to be mindless and that's okay. You know, that's a, It's intentional. And I think that, you know, that's the key with mindfulness, Vitaly, is the intentionality behind it. Mm -hmm. Those two sides that I'm talking about are have a kind of gravity to them. Mm -hmm. And people end up distracted on the road and they don't know why they are. They don't know why they're lost in thought or why they're not on the road they're supposed to be on. Or people find themselves ruminating about a past mistake or in guilt. They've learned everything they want to do differently for the future, but they keep resurrecting feelings. So there's nothing intentional about that. Or somebody who gets ready for bed, brushes their teeth, and and then begins their anxiety, their worries about tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's unintentional. You you were intending to go rest and sleep, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. there you are, you know, processing many things. So so you're right. Th- those those uh, endpoints are places we could go intentionally if we cultivated. Basically, I think of this as budgeting our attention. It's very similar to budgeting time. 
But time only matters to the extent that we're giving something attention. Any any possession, like you're talking about with with wealth management, anything that I possess is meaningful, speaking of the art of a meaningful life, precisely to the degree that I pay attention to it and get some meaning out of it. Mm -hmm. Or or Mm -hmm. family is meaningful when I'm attentive and present and we're experiencing life together. But other times, if it's not in our mind, it's as if that thing isn't even a part of our life in that moment. So there is a budget with attention as well. And I don't think people think of that really, that, that I can budget my attention. I could make a budget for my mind. And, and again, it's just a budget, right? Things come up when you have budgets with money and mm-hmm. you may deviate from it. But the budget with uh, attention simply means there's some purpose. There's something intentional about the way I approach life. And yes, occasionally I may deviate, but for the most part, you have a, a, a philosophy, a system. So there's a, the, the, one of my favorite sayings, and I, if I heard it somewhere, I don't know who I attribute it to. Attention is a currency of time. Mm. And um, if you think about it, right, like this is like, I, I love the concept of kind of budget, uh, budgeting, uh, budgeting, you know, your attention because you're right. I could be spending time answering emails or I could be spending this time, um, you know, spending time with my kids. What's more important. And I also, another way to look at it is, you know, um, if you say, okay, average, you know, average person in the United States lives until the 80 and you just say, you look at your age and it's, it's subtract 80, you know, 80, 80 subtract your age, I'm 49. So I only have 31 years to leave. So, oh my God, that is only 1500 weeks. So whatever that number is. Um, it's wild and, when you think about it like that. Exactly. Or, and suddenly you're going to start making different decisions, right? Suddenly you're going to start looking at the time you spent, you know, calling, you know, your phone company to get the three dollars back, as maybe the, now that's not the time I should, you know, you know, I should not be doing that, etc. So that's, you know, anyways, that's so. Uh, uh, anyway, that's 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 a very long answer to a very good question. You also have some, I think, very practical life hacks in your book. Mm-hmm. One that really resonated with me because I, I was experimenting with this, I guess, unconsciously. And then when you described it, I realized what it was and I want to do more of it, which is the non-binary decisions. Mm-hmm. I had some health issues in the last couple of years and just really needed to make changes with my diet, including uh, cutting out sugar. And I, I went without starch for some months to help tone down, uh, tame down some inflammation. But I, I struggled with it when I was thinking, I'll do this most of the time. And then every time it came up, somebody's offering a dessert, like you described in your book, I have to decide. And we don't realize how, uh, how much energy we lose making a decision. Decision fatigue, fear fatigue, uh, even compassion fatigue, these are all batteries in the brain. Mm-hmm. And so you describe um, a hack called a non-binary decision, mm-hmm. even if it's for a temporary period of time, just being a person that's not having sweets or not having desserts makes your life uh, more streamlined. Are there um, uh, any other hacks like that or anything else you'd like to share about that from your book? That- yeah, no. So I think, think about like, let's, let's talk about this for a second. Okay. So if when you try to um, 
when you're trying to create a habit, there are three levels of that. Uh, number one is setting a goal. Number two is creating a system. Uh, number three is uh, does becoming your identity. Goals are great because they kind of give you directions. But having goals is not enough because everybody has goals and, every, you know, like, you know, <laughs> when, uh, you know, but having goals is not enough. So systems are basically you trying mindfully, mindfully, you, you, know, you approach your life and say, how can I, what can I do to implement certain things in my life to get to this result? I'll give you kind of new, some few examples. Uh, my new example is I have, I have a system how I reduce my coffee consumption by 50%. It's very simple. I found that at some point, like I was drinking six cups of coffee. And the irony of this was the last three, I was drinking mindlessly because I was just bored. Like I would just, like I have a curry machine at, you know, at the office and I would just go and drink coffee. Just, you know, get to a stopping point, I'm doing something, go and get coffee. So I had six cups of coffee a day. So now, uh, so then I said, okay, for every cup of coffee I do, I have to do 30 push-ups. So every time I drink a cup of coffee, before I can take even the first sip, I have to do 30 push-ups. So I am now drinking about two to three cups of coffee a day instead of six, and mm-hmm. I'm doing 60 to 90 push-ups. And so, and actually, this is actually one of those things where uh, I'm getting, I'm actually, you know, there's a health benefit of this because I think push-ups are good for you, but also drink less coffee. So what I did, I created a system. And, you know, what I created a system, I, I linked coffee to push-ups. Um, when, if you want to start running, if you want to create a habit of running, you probably want to make it as easy as possible for you in the morning to, uh, you know, to do this. So you want to make sure you have the shoes, running shoes ready or the clothes ready, et cetera. So that you, you, you create a system. Um, and then your identity is that when you become a person who, and then you, you know, fill in the blank, a healthy person, you can say, uh, like if you say, um, a, let's say a healthy person does not eat sugar, okay? And that's something, if then when it becomes your identity, then it becomes a lot easier to, you know, because it's a, you look at yourself, you're the person who doesn't do that. So let's talk about non-binary decisions and then that's yeah. going to make more sense. So if you drink, let's say you have an issue with alcohol, okay? And, or you want to st- stop drinking a lot less alcohol or no, no alcohol at all. If you tell yourself, I don't drink alcohol, and then over time, this is going to become, if you keep saying this to yourself, then it's going to become your identity. In fact, what's going to happen, your conscious mind will communicate to your subconscious mind. And subconsciously, your subconscious mind will take that as a direction. I'm the person who does not drink alcohol. So whenever somebody offers you alcohol, you say, I don't drink alcohol. And it's a, if you drink it sometimes, then even 1% of the time, that's a decision you have to make, you know, every single time. It's the 1%, you know, yes. it's the night, the night out of the hundred that I, that I would yeah, drink. Exactly. It's that 1% makes every single, you know, that little 1%, even though it looks like a small number, that makes every time you offer the alcohol a decision. Correct. Okay. If you say, I don't drink alcohol when somebody offers you alcohol, then it becomes a non-decision decision. You say, I just don't drink it. Just um, 
like a true story. I have this friend who is Orthodox rabbi. And, you know, Orthodox rabbis don't eat pork. It's just, you know, that's, they don't. Okay. So he's at my house and he was telling me how he drinks too much bread. I mean, he eats too much bread. And I told him, well, just become a person who doesn't eat bread. He said, well, like, it's very difficult. I said, well, you do this all the time when you don't eat pork. I said, like, if I offer you a little bit of pork, would you eat pork? He's like, no, I'm the person who doesn't eat pork, right? For him, that's part of his identity, right? Because, you know, right. okay. And he became, you know, after this conversation, he started to approach life this way as well. So, you know, about bread. And he lost, I don't know, 20 or 30 pounds this way. Just, wow. you know, say, I'm the person who doesn't eat bread. See, that's the thing we don't actually realize that keeping it a decision, we're actually creating more pain, more difficulty for ourselves. I also noticed this in some of my work in addiction counseling that where people are at in their recovery uh -huh. um, depends on who they're telling that they're sober. If they're not uh -huh. telling some of their close friends yet, it means they're still going to make a decision from time to time on whether or not they're going to stay sober. And it kind of reflects how serious they are about the commitment. When you, when you tell people I don't drink, that's not who I am. Um, or I'm, I'm just not somebody who, who eats bread. It requires that you maintain, maintain that. And then it just, it, it's just done. Then you don't have to think about it in the same way you, you were doing moment to moment. And, and it's a conservation of energy. Um, and so now there's a super hack to this. Try to tell everyone through your writing like I do. Like, think about it. Like I, oh, could you say that again? Try to tell everybody what? Everyone about your decisions through your writings. Wow. Like, just think about it. Like, you know, when I, when I tell people, I don't need, like, you read it in my book. I don't need dessert, right? So mm -hmm. if you're in Denver and you see me eating dessert, you're like, Vital, you were just lying to the rest of the world. So... That actually, like by me putting it on paper and telling everybody, everyone about it, that is the, probably one of the most important accountabilities out there. So yeah. uh, that's a very yeah. good hack. And and when pe if people are serious, they can they can try this. They can. I have experimented with this. Um, I made changes this year with my diet that I would have thought were you know damn near impossible last year, but but making it a non decision. It was like, wow, it's not really that big of a deal. It's a big deal because you keep it a decision. It's a big deal when it's even 1% of the time. You know, I just realized you were talking about addiction. Um, I just realized this is exact. I didn't realize it until a second ago. I quit smoke. I used to smoke mm -hmm. until I was 21 years old. I probably smoked for six or seven years. So since I was very young and, and I quit smoking, what, almost 28 years ago, a long time ago. And I quit smoking when it was very difficult because there was no nicotine, nicotine patches, no you know, nicotine gums, etc. You know, all these things. Um, and I told myself, even if I smoke one cigarette, I'm going to start smoking again. And I would remember the first couple of weeks, I would wake up and sweat because I had a dream that I smoked. And because I made it at the time, have binary decision that I don't smoke. And that this, this just even taking this one cigarette and holding it and smoking it scared me. That's why I kind of, I haven't smoked in you know, a long, long time. And I think that's, that's, that's exactly right. It's just, you have to tell yourself just one sleep and then you're going to, 
if you if you allow yourself in one weakness, if you're gonna allow this one percent or two percent, then it's so much easy to uh, it's so easy to get off the wagon, whatever you're trying to do. Yeah, I I, I really appreciate that uh, description and that framing. So I did, yeah. So to, to summarize what you're saying, the non-binary decision means it's no longer a yes versus a no, moment to moment. It's only no, and after it's only no, you you don't have to wrestle with it anymore. And yeah. and it really works. It really does yeah. work. So I encourage people. And to you know, it's it. one last thing about this. Yeah. When, like when your willpower is not at the constant state during the day, you have more willpower in the morning. You probably have less of it at night. So, like when it comes to food, especially, right? When you when you during you know, at night, it's so much easier if you every time you have to make a decision about sugar, it's so much easier for you to start eating sugar at night because you just have a lot less willpower, you have a lot mm-hmm. less energy to fight it, and this is why just kind of being a half binary it makes it so much easier. That's a good point, and that's why I say it's really wise to eliminate unnecessary decisions because they are like a battery. Willpower is a battery; it declines across the day. It's also why uh, establishments where you kind of have to make important or bigger decisions, like buying a car, mm-hmm. uh, they'll have a lounge with coffee, with snacks to kind of give you more glucose because people will get fatigued thinking about. Is this the right price? Should it be this one or should it be that one? And then they naturally start to feel maybe we need to sleep on it. And of course, that reduces the likelihood of the sale. So the salespeople want you to just you know take a break, have some coffee, replenish your glucose, and we can get this done tonight. <laughs> it's it's always excellent. I love this analogy because it's almost like the opposite of it. Like you use sugar as an analogy. I would say it's like when the bars give you salty nuts so you can drink more beer. It's kind of the same thing, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so, so thank you for these. Um, and then in your book, you you pivot to Stoic philosophy. This is something you got interested in, I guess, a little bit later in your yeah. life. But to me, uh, and I don't know if you realize this, writing the book, you were already practicing Stoic techniques. When you were talking earlier in this uh, conversation about preparing ahead of time for expenses that will come. You will buy a car again. You will have health expenditures. That's actually a negative visualization. And then that informs your budgeting. It informs your money mindset, right? And again, those things are taboo. People don't really want to think about how much their next car is going to be. They don't want to think about uh, funeral expenses and things like that. They just kind of push out of their mind. In Stoic philosophy, there's a practice called negative visualization where you actually prepare yourself for the worst. You mentioned that it's hard to do with like people you love, visualizing bad things happening. But, but the way I use this technique, Vitaly, is I, I accept ahead of time that which will definitely happen that's unpleasant. So I work on accepting that I won't have my parents with me forever. I won't have this particular job forever. I won't have my youth forever. And certain things that I can do, let's say maybe physically, I won't always be able to do. So I I visualize that and I don't necessarily go too far beyond 
that in terms of what could or could not happen, but I definitely do it with that which will certainly happen. And even that I find prepares one's mind much more than than the next person, because there are inevitabilities that people just do not think about until they come. And when you think of something like death, I've read that in America, uh, one of the largest chunks of health expenditures overall happens in the last 30 days of life. Mm -hmm. To me, that reflects that people haven't really done this kind of budget. I mean, who would tell you, Vitaly, my goal is to make a ton of money to invest and generate a whole bunch of wealth and then spend it all in the last few days of my life trying to get some more days. Nobody would tell you that. So why do so many people do that? Especially when you consider like 90% of the planet believes in an afterlife. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so it just, to me, it shows where uh, the wisdom of Stoic philosophy could really fit into what's, what's natural for us. Let me let me let me take you to a little bit less a little bit less depressing yeah way of how I deal with that. I realized that my kids will grow like my negative realization happened when I realized that my kids will grow up and they will not always be with me. And I found that to be realization to be liberating because that made me like, um, so let me, let me just say it this way. If I am in a mindless mode, if I just, if I focus on you know, research and does my research or writing, I can be doing this 24 seven, okay? I love and you know, I love spending time with my kids, but the other pilot of my day job, you know, of, of, you know, of basically of doing research or writing can basically rob time from them, my time from them. And so when I realized that at some point they, they won't be young and this age forever, I realized at some point they'll grow up and they're going to have their own families. And in fact, until they're in high school, until they are 18, I probably spend 90% of my time, I forget the numbers, but like if you, if you look at number of hours you spend with your kids, like in the, until they are leave your house, this is probably more like 95% of the time you spend with them. Because when they go to school, when they go to college, you're probably going to see them for a couple hours a week, where right now you're seeing them for six, eight hours a day uh, or more. So when I realized that they won't be young forever, that, that made me refocus my attention on them. And now I'll give an example. When I drive in the, mo- in the morning, I chose not to look at it as a chore, but this incredible privilege. I look at the, when I drive my kids in the morning, I actually look forward to it because I get to spend 20 minutes with them in the car, with them in the car, listening to music, talking to them. Same thing about going skiing when you know, we're on a lift, et cetera. So that's a one way to use negative visualization. Another way to use it is that when something bad is happening to you or what you perceive as bad, if you put it in the right context, you realize, that's just an inconvenience. That's not even bad, you know. And this is where Stoic philosophy comes perfect, you know, because it, like this is like reframing, like you reframe the issue, and you start to look at it from a different angle. Um, I just wrote an article about this. Like we 
flew to New York. Uh, my, my son, my son was leaving from New York to go to Israel for two weeks for a birthright trip. And my, and my, uh, and him and his girlfriend were doing it. My, my middle daughter and I went for, you know, with them for two days to New York. And I bought tickets, I love opera. I bought tickets for, to Metropolitan Opera. And like, I never been to Metropolitan Opera. I always wanted to go and like, and plus we're going to see La Boheme, which is my favorite opera. Mm. Anyway, long story short, our plane landed on time, but we were sitting on tarmac for two hours because there was thunderstorms and, uh, and all the gates were closed. So we basically, we were late to the opera. So these two hours where I was sitting on the tarmac, I could be stressing about it, how we're going to be late to opera, or I basically can say, and this is, you know, coming back to stoic philosophy, number one, that things that are up to us, things that are not. This is like the academy of control, kind of the 101 of stoic philosophy. Well, I, there's absolutely nothing I can do uh, about the fact that I'll be late to opera or not. It's, it's not in my control. What is in my control, how we, uh, how we react to this? And now it comes to framing. Like we were sitting in the plane that was air conditioned. We had food and drinks if we needed to. And so, okay, so we're not going to go to the opera, but things could have been so much worse. Okay. I could have been in Ukraine getting bombed, like, you know, Mariupol, or something else could be happening that's horrible, that's truly horrible. Or I could have been in Texas, you know, like my, you know, like the, the Texas shooting that killed me where 19 kids died. I'm sure those parents would have paid any money to spend extra two hours on the plane with the kids, just stuck like I was stuck. So once I put it in the proper context, I realized that is a, such a, not a big deal. By the way, we were late to the opera, et cetera. We missed the opera. But once I framed it this way, like I cannot tell you how much negative emotions, you know, like I had zero negative emotions, none. And this is what kind of stoic philosophy does for you. It basically allows you to, I like to call it, the, uh, minimize the volatility of your negative emotions. I'm going to put it in the stock market chart. Yeah, that's helpful. You know, that's a really cool thing about becoming proficient and masterful at your craft. You start to see the parallels with wisdom and meaning. I found that in music and learning about how to play and sing harmony and music I've started directly encountering parallels with that in relationships and people. I, I feel like almost any field is a thread on the whole tapestry of life. And therefore, mm-hmm. like anything that anyone feels called to do, I feel will be a benefit to mankind if they do it with some you know, pure intentions. They'll get some insight that will mm-hmm. benefit all of us. And there are three main pillars, I guess you could say, that are proponents of Stoic philosophy, Marcus Aurelius, the emperor of Rome, Seneca, the Roman philosopher, and Epictetus. In your book, you uh, tend to resonate or uh, find inspiration in the life of Marcus Aurelius. I tend to gravitate toward Epictetus, and almost for opposite reasons. Can you can you share uh, with us yeah. What uh, draws you to Marcus? And I'll share with you what you know draws me to Epictetus. Uh, I actually, I think, like, the, the, I see you. I see your point. How it's complete opposites. 
Uh, no, but <laughs> kind but of I, like our lives, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so the like okay, let, me, let me let me let me contrast them a little bit. So I'm gonna so the Epictetus is you know a person who's been a slave, right? So who's oppressed, and he chooses to look at his oppression from a kind of a from a from a stoic perspective, not to be a victim and just take it with strife. Yeah. Okay, so that's one test. That's it. I, Marcus Aurelius is complete opposite, and that's where you're going with this. He is a person who is given unlimited another test, which is unlimited power and unlimited wealth, right? right. And the both are you would like you don't think of, of unlimited power or unlimited wealth as a test, but my, I would argue that's even even a greater test than the Epictetus struggles because I could see that you can look at you look at the history. And I don't, I'm not sure I can name a single other uh, king or emperor who had that. I'm sure there were exa- very few examples. There is a, like, if there are, if you can find them, there were exceptions, right? But think about, he, like, Marcus Aurelius was the empire of Rome, which at the time was basically most of Europe, I Mediterranean. So he has this unlimited power. He can do anything he wants. He can kill people. He can kill people by, by silence if he wanted to. If, um, but he never did this. He, he never prosecuted his enemies, like you know, political enemies, etc. So he governed with this grace. And he was not corrupted by that power. And if, so, if you ask you know, like one person I could have lunch with, dead or alive, would be Marcus Aurelius because I just want to just learn so much about like all the you know all these struggles he went through and how he dealt with them, and uh, that's a you know, I, like, I appreciate your reflection on that, Vitaly, because that does shed light on on everything, and, and I think it it actually connects Epictetus and Marcus. Uh, I read a, a quote from the writer Khalil Gibran, who said mm-hmm. something like, to be enthroned is to be enslaved. Yes. There, are, there are boundaries when you have that level of responsibility. Yes. And, and so, yeah, they're, they're, they're both coming from almost extremes in, yeah. the, in the social structure. So I like Epictetus. I mean, I, I appreciate everything. Said. Yeah, I like yeah, Epictetus. I'd love to know what you think. Yeah, I'd love to know what you think. Yeah. I think, you know, they're saying the same things, but what I really like is this idea of not blaming, just, just accepting and working with reality. You know, blame really sinks you into negative feelings like resentment, bitterness, and then kind of uh, becomes a cloud over your possibilities and your optimism. The other thing I like when I'm sharing the wisdom of Stoic philosophy with people it's, you know, you'll get people who don't know a lot about it pushing back, saying things like, well, that's, you know, that's fine if, you know, you have certain privileges. And then it's like, well, you know, Epictetus didn't really have any privilege. And, and he's a good example for me, like teaching Stoic philosophy to say, hey, if Epictetus can do this, you know, and, and, and can have, um, you know, can find peace and wisdom not only was he a slave, I think he also had some disability with uh, his, his, I think his, uh, if, if, if uh, his owner broke his leg, uh, yes. just, yeah, yeah, no, that's right. No, that, that's right. 
the so, so for me, just, it's it's like a, it's also like a, a positive comparison. Well, my life is not anywhere nearly as uh, uh, challenging as Epictetus is. So that gives me a sort of strength and wisdom. That means, you know, I had this experience once, Vitaly, where I was mm-hmm. working in an ashram in India, uh-huh. and we were doing some labor. And I don't, I don't like labor at all. Like, like, like you, I, I'm you're, I tend you're to lazy. Be more physically okay, lazy. Right, uh, right. And and I was feeling miserable, and I was dreaming of air conditioning back in the United States. And then I see this other gentleman from Poland, and he's whistling and doing the same work. And I could tell he's truly content and happy, then I realized my unhappiness cannot be due to the circumstances. Otherwise, he would have to be suffering as much as I am. By looking deeply at my own thoughts, I saw what it was, it was craving for non-reality. So it, because of the extremeness of the mm-hmm. uh, situation, I just kind of dropped that. And then I had a, a certain lightness or freedom that I never experienced in my life. I don't always maintain it, but um, but when I read the manual, for instance, or the Enchiridion of Epictetus, mm-hmm. you find those lessons there. You, you think about something, something said like, it's not the things that disturb us, but our view of yes. those things. That's very well, I think that's exactly powerful. right. I have this great, great story, especially yeah. your younger listeners would be able to relate to this. Yeah. So my son, Jonah, when he was in 11th grade in high school, he managed to get a 1.3 GPA, 1.3. He had a little concerning for dad, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, he got a girl issue, et cetera. And, um, and then on his senior year, he actually tripled his GPA, which is mm-hmm. quite amazing. He got it to 3.9. Wow. But, so, but when he graduated from high school, his overall GPA was so low that the school he wanted to go to all his life, CU Boulder, you know, and we live in Denmark, so it's about 40 miles away. CU Boulder, where at school I took him to like once or twice a year when we go to football games, um, would not take him. And he was absolutely crushed about this, you know, because he could not go to the school he wanted to. So he took a gap year in in Israel and he got perfect GPA, you know. And uh, so so he took classes online and he got perfect GPA and he transferred it into Boulder and it took him with a perfect, uh, no, with an academic scholarship. Okay, so far so good. Now, this is where it gets interesting. But then the pandemic happens. And he basically can go to CU Boulder, but he would be studying in the dorms, taking classes online. Or he could go to community college, take classes online, and live anywhere he wants, where he chose to go to Hawaii and live in Hawaii for three months, taking classes. You know, so, so what I wanted to notice something. So he was miserable when CU Boulder chose, you know, chose not to take him, but then he, oh, and oh, and the one point I want to make, one point I want to make, what he would terrified him about not going to see a border that he would have to go to community college because he thought, what would my friends think about this? Now, when see border accepted him, he made a decision not to go and go to community college. Okay. So it's a thing about it, the same, the outcome is the same, not going to see a border. Right. But, in the you know the first time he felt like a victim 
The second time he didn't because he's the one who made the decision, even though the same outcome. So, and I think that is, and that's all about, as you said, it's about how we, how we look at that, how we frame that. And yes. um, there's a story around everything that happens to us that we tell ourselves. That's exactly right. And that story uh, creates some meaning about our pain. The, the meaning might be bitterness or resentment or blame, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. it might be fear about the future, but it's the story that's creating much more suffering beyond whatever the, the present challenge or present difficulty may be. And we are in the control of the story we create. Correct. We can create a story that creates more pain or removes pain. And that's up to us. Mm-hmm. And, and that's powerful. You know, it's, it's worth experimenting with. And, uh, you know, for those listening to us speaking here, there's an entire section in Vitaly's book on Stoic philosophy. Um, and, and it's very practical the way Vitaly presents it. So, yeah. So thanks for sharing that, Vitaly. One of the uh, other things I want to ask you about is, so you're talking about meaning and I think you, you, what you were alluding to with money earlier in our conversation, mm-hmm. not not equating to happiness, but lack of money can 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 be um, be something that makes a person unhappy. But but that makes sense to me from a psychology standpoint because meaning happens on a higher level of the hierarchy of needs. If you've ever heard of Maslow's hierarchy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Needs. yeah I want the shelter and the yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and really, money is is treating the first level, which is food, safety, shelter, security, like love and belonging is the next level. And I suppose if you didn't have food, shelter, security, it would probably be hard to build loving relationships. So it matters in so far as you would build on top of that. But since so many people equate money with happiness, they get that first pillar or that that first stage set and they just keep going with it. But really it's more like a box. You're safe and secure or you're not in terms of evolution. And so if we're not going on to building meaning by being creative, by loving people, by being of service to the community, by expressing ourselves like you do with your writing and um, appreciating the beauty around us through music, through art, through nature, And then going on to self-actualization, which is the peace and contentment that ensues from the realization of who we truly are and no longer being attached to false senses of self. So money, you know, plays some, some role in that, but in this current environment, right, we we've been through a pandemic or we're still going through a pandemic, but we were, there's some light at the end of the tunnel and Mm -hmm. we have, economic uncertainty, geopolitical mm-hmm. risk, what, you know, what causes for hope and optimism are there from your experiences and not just your experiences as an investor, but as, as a father going through challenges, as a person who transitioned to a whole nother part of the planet, what, what can you share with us that maybe can give people some guidance during these uncertain times? And, and some people feel like they're really dark times and they don't really know um, you know, how to proceed in terms of being successful. Yeah. So there's a saying where I really like, life in itself has no meaning. It's an opportunity for us to create meaning. So 
when I think about what gives me meaning in life, and uh, I just want to preface it that this is a, a study with observation of sample of one myself. So I'm not sure I'm speaking for everyone. I'm just speaking for myself. Okay. I get meaning from, and it needs to be several sources, not just one. Because if other sources are, mi- are missing, then um, then it's like, then it's, it's kind of, then I feel empty. So number one is relationships, you know, and uh, that's number one. Number two, for me, it's a creativity, like both basically kind of, you know, the creativity, like, you know, think about investing. It's incredibly creative. You don't think about it because there's numbers associated with things, et cetera. Can, can you share with me a little more about how it's creative from your, from okay. your process? So, okay. So if you think about anything, any activity that is creative has this element exist in it, which is uncertainty, risk, meaning that you put an effort in and you and it doesn't uh, it doesn't always equate to the outcome or or at least not immediately or um, and also so that's an investment next so I'll give you I'll give you this from a couple of perspectives from investing so I we do this research on the company and Seneca has the saying time discovers truth so my job as an investor discover truth before time does. And that's what our research process is. We try to figure out how much company is worth before time figures out what it's new and then wait for time to discover it. So number one, we can make a mistake in our analysis. So that's, so that's why there is uncertainty between the decision we made and the outcome. Also, things could happen that's completely outside of, out of left field. Right. Like there was a war in Ukraine. Who would have thought if I talk, told you a year ago that Russia is going to invade Ukraine? Nobody would have believed it. You know? So like that's completely, to, you know, to most people, a risk out of left field. So, so where every time you do, you do research uh, and we, we make a decision, we, we, you know, over time we'll discover were we right or not. So, and that creates tension. Uh, that's create tension. And to me, that's a very creative endeavor because you try to use different tools, different mental, mental models to figure out, you know, if you're, you know, to value the asset and figure out if you're, you know, if you, if you buy a discount or what it's worth. That's when it comes to investing. Now, let me tell you about writing. To me, when I sit down to write an article, it's almost like, imagine there is a lot of fog and I can only, and I'm driving in the fog. And I can only see maybe that's you know, three, five feet away. And only when I'm, dri- I'm, you know, kind of when I'm done driving and I kind of drove through the fog, I can look back and say, oh, this is what I drove through. So there is a lot of uncertainty. Like I sit down to write an article. A lot of times I am as curious as a reader who reads it for the first time, what it's going to look like. Because what I'm doing, creative, you know, creative process, a lot of time, like especially with writing, it's a connecting to my conscious and subconscious mind. All I'm trying to do is download knowledge that probably already exists in my subconscious mm. onto the piece of paper. And so that is, that's, you know, and I'll be honest, it's not always fun. It's a, a lot of time, it's a very painful process. But you know what? I would not trade it for anything because that process, that even that pain gives me meaning. 
that's what actually, that's what that pain, even though when I, when I experience it, I'm not up, jumping up and down that I have this pain. But at the end of the day, like over time, that's, that's the pain that kind of recharges my battery, like as an investor, as a writer. So to me, again, I'm speaking of myself, um, that gives me meaning. And, and, and there is overriding one, one kind of philosophical concept on top of that. Everything I do, I want to be net positive to people I work, you know, like, you know, so when I write, there is also an element of that I want to help people. When I invest, I really want to help our clients. In the relationships I have, I want to be kind and I want to be net positive to the people I interact with. So that's kind of, that's what, you know, kind of having a meaning in life, you know, that's where I get the meaning in life. I kind of create it through fairly active actions. You know, the relationships are not mm-hmm. passive, you know, they're active as well. I can relate to that. And with my podcast, Kind Mind, and the kindness that I try to share with listeners, mm-hmm. I think of it as motivated by wanting to be a net positive. I want the Mm-hmm. Net result of my life on earth to have yielded a positive impact, to have given more than, than I took. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you said something like leaving the space better than the way you found it, or, mm-hmm. or you're making your world better than the way, way you found it. Mm-hmm. Um, with, you know, with that kind of outlook, I think people can face any challenges collectively or personally. When you're open and curious, you mentioned curiosity, you find the opportunities for creativity and the creative process can unfold. And with the Stoic philosophy that you mentioned in the book, I think people can find mental models to navigate on certain times and uh, continue to build meaning and create meaning. Yeah, you asked me a question which I didn't answer. How do I kind of like we live in a very uncertain world. It seems like every year the world becomes more and more uncertain, right? Right. How do you, so there are a couple of things, like, like one of the things we have to be careful about is that we have to have, um, we have to have filters on how much negative information you want to receive. And let me tell you why, because yeah. there are so few things that are up to us. Like really, so like if you think we're gonna like uh, in the early innings of the pandemic, like if you thought this could you know we could have disruption in the food supply, okay, maybe it was up to you to make sure you have enough food, okay? It was maybe up to you, you have face mask or whatever, you know, this kind of things. But but beyond that, there were so few things that were up to you. So if you kept like, or today there was a war in Ukraine and like, you know, and uh, I found myself glued to the TV in the beginning of the war, nonstop, just trying to figure out what happens. And then I realized there are so few things I can do about this. So one of the things I could, I tried to raise as much money for Ukraine and donate as I could. So I did that. Okay. But beyond that, um, I tried to educate uh, people through my writings about Ukraine, and you know, and your listeners and uh, viewers can read my articles on Contrarian Edge, where I have five essays about the war in Ukraine. Okay, but beyond that, there is very little I can, I can do. So now, I give myself twenty minutes a day. How much time I'm going to allocate to on, you know, stay on top of news in Ukraine, and that's about it. So I personally, another thing, 
So I was talking to somebody, and he was telling me how the you know how um, we we live in a society that we don't let our kids walk to school because we are afraid something's going to happen to them. Okay, um, and the irony of that is that if you look at the crime crime statistics, life is safer today than it was almost any time in the last 30, 50 years. Crimes, crimes are a lot lower. But here's what happened. Because now we have national news, not local news. In the past, you were, looking, you were watching your local station, and when a crime happened locally, you would see this. Now you're watching CNN or Fox News or whatever, or, or read national, uh, national news. You see crime happening every day somewhere. And therefore, it actually conditioned us to think that there is a lot more crime happening. So I find that the watching local news or actually watching like network TV has a, actually is a very toxic and negative for me. So I don't. So it's like, so we should have a, so we talked about mindfulness. You should be very mindful about the information you let in because you think you can control it. You can't. It's a, at the end of the day, it's going to, it sneaks in, occupies your mind, and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, it's a, so I, during the, when, uh, during the presidential elections, I don't listen to political podcasts. I watch as little TV as I can, because I know that when I did this, I just felt aggravated and I felt uh, like I had a lot of just negative feelings. So I mean, that's one of the ways yeah. to deal with that. You know, you make a, a good point that there's a difference between being frustrated and activism. Yes. You know, when you raised money for Ukraine, you were making a difference. But there's only so much of a difference we can make with with some of these issues. And there is a, a, a calibration to be made when it comes back to time management, money management, mm -hmm. attention management. And to make that distinction between frustration and impact. I think we're kind of conditioned to believe that we ought to be frustrated about so many things that are outside of our control. And yet the frustration alone isn't our vote, isn't the impact we can make in our community. And sometimes that balance is so off that we're missing opportunities to make positive contributions to our family, to our neighborhood, to our towns. And it seems to reflect the changes with connection and friendships in our lives with with the transitions to social media and all the telecommunications because people really don't know much that's going on around them but they know a lot more about what's going on in the world and when you extend the news or make the news primarily global or national mm -hmm. you can always feel some distant pain point and overlook what's going on in your backyard. So drive I think payment, you're right. Finding some parameters for that is essential. Yeah, yeah drive payment you know, is not good for news, right? And, um, and also, this is actually one thing I just realized. The cost, like, you know, the, our, expose, our overexposing to negative information has a cost. And the cost is not just us, but we, like, you know, that also impacts our mood and therefore it impacts how we interact with people we love. So there is a so there is a secondary, you know, there's a secondary impacts of that as well. 
I appreciate that. I think that that'll be very helpful for listeners. And, and I, I'm also glad that you mentioned that you got several essays about the, the war in Ukraine on your website or in, uh, in your blog, The Contrarian Edge. Um, are there any other uh, places where people can follow your work, Vitaly, yeah. or ways uh, to keep up with what you're doing? Okay, so I'll give you a few things. Yeah. So if you want to read my articles and subscribe to them, and when you subscribe to my articles, you get them by email, you get my father's art. I discuss some things about investing, some things about philosophy of life, and there is a section about classical music. So you get all that. So you can read them or subscribe to them on contrarianedge.com. If you want to listen to my podcasts, you can go to the intellect. Uh, you can just look for intellectual investor or go to investor.fm. And finally, and this is very important. So the book I just wrote, Soul in the Game. Yes. You can. You can. If you go to soulinthegame.net, and there are instructions there. So once you buy the book, and you there are instructions there how you can get four new chapters that I just wrote, sent to you, uh, uh, that, that I wrote after the book. So then, you know, so go there and uh, you get instructions how to get even more my content. Uh, so yeah, so soulinthegame.net, yeah. Thank you so much, Vitaly. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an immense pleasure. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. So there you have it, folks. Check out Vitaly's new book, Soul in the Game, The Art of a Meaningful Life. Vitaly, wishing you all the best this year with the book and uh, with, your, uh, with your podcast tours. And uh, hopefully we can connect again. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Take care.